and welcome to This is True Crime, y'all. Today's case is the Pickled Human Flesh Cellar, a.k.a. Carl Denke. The horrific facts we are going to discuss come from the relatively recent history of Zambiche and were brought to light by Lucina Bialy, curator of the Archive of Old Printed Materials at the University Library in Roclaw. While going over the catalog of the Silesian Press, Miss Bialy stumbled upon this macabre story from Zambiche's history. Zambiche was formerly known as Monsterberg, which is far easier to say and seems more apropos, but we're going to roll with it anyway. What she uncovered was this old story, apparently lost to time, when reading articles and archiving for the university. She shared her discoveries at a popular science conference in Zimbabwe. It was in this report by the Madam Curator that Casus Denki, or the Cannibal of Zimbabwe, was revealed to the world. She did reiterate that this is not an isolated case. She said of this, It is necessary to emphasize that since the beginning of the 20th century in German lands, there have been even more perverse mass murderers. Names such as Ludwig Tresnov come to mind, who raped, murdered, and dismembered four children in the area of Osnabrück, Friedrich Harman, called the Butcher from Hanover, who killed about 50 young people and sold their flesh as meat as well. He was beheaded in 1926. A bank clerk, Fritz Angerstein, y'all, is that really his name? Angerstein? Okay. Um, he is known to have killed about seven people, and he was sentenced to death in 1925. Finally, Peter Curtin, called the Vampire of Dusseldorf, was accused of nine murders and seven attempted murders, and like his moniker says, he drank the blood of his victims. He was also beheaded on July 2nd, 1931. Now, upon hearing of this frightful case, the mayor of Zimbabwe, I'm gonna mess this up, Tadeusz Wolski, was faced with one hell of a dilemma. On one hand, it was hard to imagine a person more depraved and sick than Carl Denke, and he is quoted to say it does not exactly bring positive fame to the town. Then he was like, wait, wait, wait just a damn minute, okay? Because for do not famous murderers, all kinds of torture chambers, and other human perversions lure the curious? Look at me with my podcast and you lovely people listening, and you should know that this is a rhetorical question. He said, quote, Let us think how we can exploit our cannibal. Perhaps in our museum of household goods and the town hall building, we could give him a little corner. Did they just say the museum of household goods? Does that not sound like the most boring fucking museum on the planet? Like, of course... They need this. Like, what, did they have, like, eight people visit before this? So the mayor said, fuck it, basically, and had an exhibit at the Household Equipment Museum. 
and held a showing in the summer of 1999. The exhibit was named An Ancient Iconography of Zimbiche and featured tools used by Carl Denke in his crimes. And once you hear about these crimes, you're going to be like, holy shitballs. But enough of the intro and the fluff. Let's get to the cold, hard facts of this case. Because it is wild as all get out. It's going to give you guys some weird-ass Ed Gein vibes. Carl Denke was born August 12, 1870 to wealthy farmers in some town that I cannot pronounce, but it is near Zimbiche. Carl had two siblings, both older brothers, but their names aren't mentioned in any articles that I have read. Carl is what we would have called a problem child. He ran away from home starting at the age of 12. He would run away and he would almost always be brought back to the farm. Except for this one time when he ran away from home for nine months. Nine months? Where did you go? Boy, what did you do for nine months? And you know what? When he, re- when he returned, his family didn't even ask where he was, why he left, or why he came back. When he returned, he told his family that he had worked in a quarry and then in construction. But again, he just came back and continued as if nothing had happened. According to a 1938 Knoxville Journal article, he came from a, quote, reputable family untainted by insanity, end quote, Don't you just love that old-timey talk? Like, they use a lot of words to really say something simple. As a child, in addition to being pedantic, shallow and pedantic, Carl was described as, quote, dull, end quote. He didn't begin speaking until the age of six and had learning difficulties, if he learned anything at all. He was way behind the other children. He often received punishments for refusing to do his work. His teachers would state, He's very obstinate and lacks respect for us. When he spoke, his voice was soft and quiet. His teachers would call him names, tell him that he's an idiot, and that he would never accomplish anything in life. Wow, what the actual fuck? You probably helped make this killer anyway. Unfortunately, he would prove them wrong by becoming a prolific serial killer and cannibal. It was so bad that he actually left school after elementary. He quit school and he started apprenticing with a gardener. He said, fuck y'all, straight up quit going. He worked for a gardener for almost a decade until the age of 25 when his father passed away. The farm was taken over by his older brothers. After his father's death, his brothers gave him a job working for them. They would later report that he was lazy, didn't do a good job, and wouldn't show up for days at a time. They'd find him wandering alone through the woods instead of working. His family stated that he never showed signs of fear or disgust. However, he had no violent temper Um, yeah, 
or so you thought, I guess. When Carl was 48, he cut off all contact with his brothers after a pretty dumbass fight. I mean, they are siblings, so any fight is probably petty as crap. Um, so this is the fight that happened. While he was living in Munsterberg, yes, I said it, uh, he lived in town while his brothers lived outside of town on the family farm. They had been inviting him to dinner for years, and he never came. Then he finally accepted an invitation to a dinner party, and everything goes to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. His brother gets furious with him for eating two pounds of meat in one sitting and calls him a glutton, and they basically never speak again. After his father's death, he got a small inheritance and bought a piece of land with the money. Turns out he was a decent gardener, but he really sucked dick at farming and sold his land shortly thereafter. He bought himself a little house on present Statuowa Street in Zimbiche, but his savings were quickly devoured by the uncontrollable inflation of the times. At that time, the overall German population went from being relatively prosperous before World War I to a nation full of homeless people, widows, and injured veterans unable to work and provide for their families. The homeless men's shelters were full every single night, and Carl would know because he would work there and volunteer at the shelters to scope out potential victims. He eventually had to sell his house, but he still lived in one room on the right side of the ground floor. And he still had his workshop, or what I would call his little shop of gross-ass horrors, that stands adjacent to the house. Carl Denke was well-liked in the community before his arrest. He's known to have been called Vater Denke, which means Father Denke or Papa Denke by the locals. He was well-renowned in the town of 8,000 people. He would carry the cross at funerals of the evangelist commune, community. He would serve as the organ blower for the local church and was known to help the homeless even. I mean, as you're going to find out, he probably killed a lot more people than he helped though. After his series of failures at school, farming, and business, he found an alternative means of procuring food and income by killing vagabonds he would meet at the train station and homeless shelters. He would gain their trust quite easily and take them home virtually unnoticed. The train station was, after all, just a short walk from his place and both were on the outskirts of town. All right, now we're getting down to the meat and potatoes, his arrest and the gruesome discoveries that came very shortly thereafter. A gentleman arrived in town. He was a vagrant. He was looking for work. He arrived and went to the local hangout spot. He had just arrived in town from Australian, which was a town about 30 to 40 miles away. He quickly heard the stories about Papa Denke, a kind local man with a reputation for helping out those down on their luck. 
Vincennes was desperate and hungry and needed a place to stay. After knocking on some of the other doors, following up on the leads of kind strangers, he eventually arrived at Carl Denke's house. He knocked on Carl's door and Carl invited him in, asking, are you a stranger here? Carl did let him in and what followed was a brutal attack that was meant to kill Vincennes. On Sunday, December 21st, 1924, around 1 p.m., a man covered in blood was discovered by another tenant of the Statua Street House. Gabriel, who was a coachman and living in the house, heard cries for help, which seemed to emanate from Danky's room. Gabriel rushed down to help and found Vincennes Olivier staggering along the corridor blood streaming from a wound on his open scalp. As he fell unconscious to the floor, he shouted that Vater Danke had attacked him with an axe. The police were called and were told what they thought was a tall tale, that he had barely escaped death at the hands of Carl Danke. Police assumed that this vagrant, Vincennes Olivier, was either confused or just outright lying. How dare he accuse such an upstanding member of society? They even warned him that Papa Danke could sue him for slander and threatened to put him in jail for two weeks for making false accusations. And they actually did put him in jail at that time. While he was in jail, he was given medical attention to the open wound to the top of the skull, and the doctor confirmed that Vincennes was indeed seriously wounded. Police, not knowing what to do or whom to believe, wanted to recreate the attack between the two, so they went to speak to Father Danke. Once they made it to his apartment, he didn't let them in, which was odd because normally he would invite them in to speak. Instead, he came outside to greet them and they told Father Danke that they would like to do a reenactment and that they needed to enter his apartment. When that was revealed, Carl got real fucking quiet, real fucking fast. He stopped responding to their questions altogether and was taken down to the station and placed in a cell. When he came out for his interrogation, Father Danke explained that he had attacked Mr. Olivier as he attempted to rob him after receiving a handout. Vincennes came to Father Danke's house looking for room and board. He gave Vincennes some food and then asked him if he needed any money. Vincennes said yes, of course he did, and Father Danke asked him to write a letter because Father Danke could not read or write. And so he was going to give him money for writing this letter. But then after he wrote the letter, Vincennes decided to rob him of the rest of his money. Carl Danke stayed locked in a holding cell while police tried to ascertain just what the hell was going on. Now, there are differing accounts of what happened next, but I am going with the one that I saw reported the most. So just 
work with me. If you go look at this case and you find some other things, you know, take it how you will, but I'm going to take my creative license and we're going to roll with it the way that I want to. While they had Father Danke locked up in a cell, the police and detectives decided to visit the scene of the crime. What they saw on that Christmas in Danke's shop would forever haunt even the most formidable policemen. And this is what they saw. In the kitchen, two large tubs held pickled meat and brine, which he was selling at the local markets every week. Due to the war and scarcity of resources, people lined up all down the block waiting to buy whatever meat anyone was selling, no matter what kind of meat it was. And Carl was known for having fresh, cheap, tender, and juicy meat. Fucking yikes. It's people. It's soil. It's people, y'all. You think you're getting pickled pork, but it's people. There was so much evidence lying around, assorted bones, pots of fat, teeth, clothing. It, it's insanity. They tried to figure out how many body parts or bodies that these parts came from. And um, it took a lot and they still never really narrowed it down. But in order to describe what they saw, we will refer to the report given by Friedrich Petruski, who was the acting head of the Institute of Legal Medicine in Breslau. The report dates back to 1926 and was published in the, not going to even try to pronounce that, but I'm sure it's a newspaper there or something to that effect. So this is going to be a verbatim from that report. So if it sounds old timey, that's because it is. The first findings made in Danke's house during the search were bones and pieces of meat simmering in a salt solution on the stove and in wooden drums. There were altogether 15 pieces with skin attached. Two parts of the breast, which were all strongly hairy, okay. The torso that they found was cut through the middle, three fingers above the navel, navel. And if you're putting three fingers above your navel right now, I just want you to know that you're my people because I literally did that. Its lateral limit is the front shoulder blade. So from three fingers above the belly button all the way up to the shoulder blade. And the piece of the anterior abdominal wall, the middle of the navel is still visible. The remaining pieces belong to the side and back. The largest is about 40 by 20 centimeters large, which converts to seven by 15 inches. Particularly striking, and I'm not sure if I would use striking in this context, was a very clean anus with a large parts of both buttocks attached. Striking, oh, okay. The meat is brownish red and does not feel as if the body would have lost much blood. On the back of some of these pieces, there's a soft bluish discoloration, which is visible as well as liver mortis, 
which leads to the conclusion that the disassembly of the body took place several hours after death and not while the victim was alive. But missing from the torso was skin and muscles from the neck, as well as extremities, the arms and legs, head and sexual organs. Lesions could not be seen at the time, nor the nature of death, nor the tool of the crime could be confirmed. In three medium-sized pots filled with cream sauce, oh, I'm never gonna eat cream sauce again. Um, there was some cooked meat partially covered with skin and human hair. The meat was pink and soft. All pieces seemed cut from the gluteal area or the buttocks. One pot only had half a portion, which they conclude that Danky must have eaten the other piece shortly before being arrested. A disgusting gelatinous mass, 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 whatever, was found in a bowl on the table in his room filled with an amber-colored liquid fat that appeared to be human. Biological testing gave a weak positive result for the presence of human proteins. In the shed, which was where pieces of meat were found as well, there was also a barrel full of bones that were cleaned, of tendons, muscles, etc. Like, they were clean, clean. Um, that they probably had been cooked down and boiled to get the flesh off of. The investigation initially revealed the existence of six forearm bones, which means they belonged to at least three people, and other body parts were found out back of the shed. A part of a leg remained in the pond that Denki had done many years before, Doug, sorry, and also skeletal pieces were uncovered in the forest next to his house. Now here is the full list of what has been sent to the crime lab for examination. I use that term loosely, obviously. It is 1924. There is no DNA. There is no blood typing. There's practically nothing. So just bear with me. But based on what they find, you can draw several conclusions from it. And here's the list. 16 femurs, of which one pair was remarkably strong. I don't know what the fuck that means. Uh, two pairs of very thin ones. Also not sure. Six pairs with two left femurs. Oh, that's not a pair. 15 medium-sized pieces of long bones. I guess they didn't identify where those bones came from in the body. Four pairs of elbows. I thought those were tendons, not bones. I'm obviously not that great at um, anatomy. Seven heads of radii, nine lower parts of radii, eight lower parts of the elbow would not that be the forearm, a pair of upper shin bones, a pair of lower elbows of which extremities still remain connected, 
a pair of upper arms and a pair of upper arm heads. Again, this old timey stuff does not really explain what that means. A pair of collarbones, two shoulder blades, eight heels and ankle bones, 120 toes and phalanges. I know how to say phalanges at least. Thank you, Mrs. White. 65 feet and metacarpal bones, five first ribs and 150 pieces of ribs. All bones with the exception of few are very light, porous and fatless, meaning that they had either been boiled and or bleached. So here's where we get into the truly messed up like, uh, you'll just wait and see, okay? Among Danky's items, there were found three pairs of suspenders made of human skin. They are six centimeters wide and 70 centimeters long, which in American is about 27 inches long by two and a half inches wide. It's said that the, quote, leather is not smooth and at one spot is broken on one pair. It seems not to have been tanned, but only been skinned free of the subskin tissue and dried. At one spot, it is obvious that he made the cuts under the nipples, which are still clearly visible. Four are patched with human skin taken from the the pubic area. Some traces of louse knits, oh my god, that's so gross, were also discovered under the microscope. All suspenders show traces of use. He was actually wearing human skin suspenders, y'all. And he was actually found wearing one of these when he was taken into custody. Jesus! Besides the suspenders, Danky had also had leather straps cut out of human skin, which he treated with shoe polish and parts of which were sewn together with pieces of rags and cloth. Many of these laces were made of human hair. One sample was one centimeter long, grayish white, and according to the report, was taken directly from the head of the victims. From which area of the body came the other pieces cannot be said. In addition to various old clothes, which were in the apartment, there were 41 large and small bundles of rags bent together with straps. The investigation led to no results concerning these old worn out clothes, except he had them hanging in a closet and they were bloodstained. So yes, they were obviously from his victims. Equally strange was Danky's collection of coins. And I'm not gonna say equally strange because to me, um, making suspenders out of humans is not the same as weird, unfired clay pieces that look like coins, okay? I'm throwing that out there because they say equally strange. No, it's not equally. They're talking about coins that are unfired clay pieces that range in size 
which have just one side of the image of a real coin. And it reminds me of when, like, you would take a quarter and put a hole in it and, like, you know, use it to get a drink at the vending machine or something and then pull it back out. But yeah, I digress. Also found were a large number of ID cards and private papers of several persons, as well as account books on revenue from the garden, on his working hours, and so on. They were relatively managed and clear. More attention was attached to some loose sheets of paper on which names of 30 men and women appear. In front of every name, there is a date, and we would have to assume it is the date that he murdered the victim. At number 31, there's only a date, not a name. So I assume that was Vincennes, obviously. His name was about to get written down real fast. Luckily, he got the fuck out of there. And this is super sexist. In case of the women, he only wrote down their first name. But for the men, he was much more detailed. He would have their date of birth, their place of stay, and the status of the person. So, <clears throat> the ID cards found in Denki's room belonged to people whose whereabouts could not be known. At least 12 IDs were found. By the appearance of the sheets that were written on with the names of the victims, we can assume that the list had not been made in one day. Oh, and uh, yeah, here's even worse part. On one side of the sheets were the initials with the name following by a number. And they were trying to figure out what number that correlated to. On another slip of paper next to a name, he would have, you know, like his standings, like his stats, like dead, 122, naked, 107, disemboweled, 83. And they think that this is the number of pounds of meat that he got off of the person. And fun fact, okay, not fun fact, I'm sure I'm on a list for Googling this now, but the average human body has 75 pounds of muscle on them. Yep, I'm definitely on a list if I was not before. This psycho was meticulous and very fucking stupid for writing all that down. His first known victim was Ida Lawner in 1903, and he continued until he was caught in 1924. 21 years he did this, and no one suspected a thing. In 1909, it was Emma Saunders. Um, let's see, a local man named Edward Trotman was arrested for his murder. Of course, they had a date, and he was the last person to see her alive. So, of course, they just assumed it was him. And in 1911, he was found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in Glatz prison. In February 1914, he killed Heinrich Brockman, a carpenter. In January of 1919, he killed a railroad worker named Nibel. And in 1924, he killed Casper Hubelek. And those are only the known victims. Of course, there are still many unknown victims. 
They found a lot of tools that he used for the killings. Like I said, they're now in the Museum of Household Things or whatever. Um, they found three axes, a large wood saw, a tree saw, a pickaxe, multiple knives. All of these have been seized with the exception of the axes and the tree saw, which were sent to be tested for traces of human blood. Did indeed have human blood on it and wood chips. We suppose that he had much finer tools that he would use to cut the heads and the pelvic bones apart. The pickaxe was used for the last assassination attempt on Vincennes, and human blood is on that as well. As for the knives, we could not make things all clear, which I assume means they just couldn't find, you know, viable traces of blood, like it had been washed off or something. In the forest next to his house, there were remains of a spine, four parts of a clean, dissected male pelvic bone or area, which one side showed traces of sawing. There was a piece of a cranium found. This is a piece of the inferior petrosal sinus area that was jagged on the front side that looked broken and had visible signs of sharp sawing on it. This piece of bone is cross-marked with ink. Like he drew a cross on it? Ew. Based on these findings, we were able to declare that the bones sent to us belonged to at least eight people. Of course, other bones were yet to be uncovered over the years. The last pieces were found in the late 1940s, just after World War II, by now Polish inhabitants of the house. Oh, we're going to talk about teeth. Yay! Teeth. Considerably more revealing was Denki's dental collection, which received a total of 351 human teeth. I'm going to say that again. 351 teeth. These were found in a money bag and in tin boxes. On the tin boxes, one was written salt and the other was pepper, as well as in three paper bags. They were partly sorted according to their size. The molars were in the money bag, while the others in the two boxes and paper bags were sorted as well. In yet another bag, there were teeth that belonged to probably one person, and in a third bag, Three lower incisors were found. This one probably came from an older individual. You don't have three on the bottom? I don't know. Anyway, I'm not a dentist. Um, all teeth, with the exception of six, were very well preserved. The investigation led to very notable results. So the remains of the bones said that there was a definite minimum of eight victims. And from the list that I read, I'm going to have to say more than that, judging by the pairs of elbows and femurs and blah, blah, blah. But okay. But the teeth show that there were at least 20 victims or more. And then there was a professor who studied them who said that the teeth belonged to at least 25. 
five or more, which when you're killing over a 21 year period, yes, there probably was a lot more that they did not find. The teeth had been extracted in different ways. Some seemed to have been taken out easily, while others had solid roots and had obviously been extracted with force. Oh my God, that makes my teeth hurt. Okay. Um, a lot of them showed fractures in the tooth enamel that could not have occurred during the victim's normal lifetime. And on some, there are traces of claws of very sharp-edged instruments. There are some that seem to justify that the jaw had been cooked in advance of removing the teeth. So, yeah, yeah, you know, suspenders, laces made out of people, keeping teeth. I mean, this guy and Ed Gein would have been like BFFs forever, like them and probably the butcher baker and some other real gross people so by now you're surely asking yourself or me melissa what was his trial like did they have to parade all of these items he made out of humans and pickled quote pork to a jury or to a judge was he beheaded or was he hung like girl well it's kind of a bummer y'all because the night of his arrest, after they went to his house and found all of this evidence, they checked back in on Carl at 11.30 p.m. And when Sergeant Palkey looked in on him, he found Carl Denke dead. Carl had made a rope from his handkerchief and tied it to a ring in the wall meant to chain up the inmates. He then laid on the floor and pressed down with his body weight until he died. If you can't be handsome, you can at least be handy. Now, in tons of articles, it says that he used his human suspenders, but I think that's more for shock value because based on reading earlier clips from newspapers from the time period and region, it is said that it was for sure a handkerchief. And I know you're thinking, how big is this handkerchief? Well, apparently, in Germany, a handkerchief is more like a scarf. There is only one known picture of Karl Denke, and it is the one police took of him after his suicide. When autopsied, doctors analyzed Denke's stomach and detected, you guessed it, human protein in his not fully digested meal in his stomach. So here we are at the end again. And now you can say that you've heard of Carl Denke. I had not heard of him before this, which is really what I love to do cases about because some things have just been done to death. Although I would like to do some of the bigger cases and put my own spin on it like I do. So thank you for listening. And if you would please share my podcast or give me five stars on whatever app you listen to. I'm on Stitcher, Amazon, Google, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. I'm on all of them. So please feel free to share with your friends and let me know what you think. My email is this is true crime y'all at gmail.com. Feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you think. So thank you for listening. Have a great night.